0: I can't wait to hear you say Malikian. I I am going to say Malikian. Great. You're great.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, welcome to welcome. our podcast. Welcome. Yeah. Hello. Every two weeks, we watch a film of our choosing. We do a little research, and then we make Check Your Threading, a podcast dedicated to learning about the culture, history, and psychology of that film. My name is Bonnie. I am a student of life. I would totally be in the same room as Oscar Isaac, and I have... A lot of sweat going on today.
1: And I'm Lauren, and I didn't know that we were going to mix these up every time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm a Sagittarius, mm. and um, I don't do well with improv, so I'll prepare for this next time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what movie are we going to talk about?
0: So, this week we're talking about George Washington, like
1: um, the president.
0: No, not like the president. No.
1: Okay.
0: Though kind of like the president, in a way.
1: Do tell.
0: <laughs> uh, George Washington is an American drama film written and directed by David Gordon Green with cinematography by Tim Orr, They're most famous for uh, Pineapple Express. It was made in the year 2000, and it did not receive a wide release at the time, The Onion AV Club's A.A. Dowd describes the film as filmed in North Carolina around the turn of the millennium with a cast of mostly adolescent unknowns, this disarmingly poetic coming-of-age story established Green's talent for blending small-town realism with mythic Deep South romanticism.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Why don't you go ahead and set us up with some history?
1: So um, as you mentioned, this movie takes place at the turn of the millennia. Um, So I wanted to look at basically what was going on in North Carolina at the time, Mm -hmm. Um, because we're given a very specific view of this community uh, where the film takes place. It's a very rural area. There's a lot of focus on scrap metal and shipping and we see a lot of trash and it's very like industrial is the wrong word but like it has a very strong rust belt vibe Mm -hmm. so i learned that north carolina is statistically more rural than other states its size Uh, and while some of its city centers have seen economic growth over the past 20 years the areas that this movie takes place in are like by and large still sort of suffering from the same recession that we see in this movie So, we're seeing adults in their early 20s who work at the scrapyard and are way too interested in the lives of high school kids because that's who they used to be. (laughs) And the kids are interested in them, I think, a little perversely because some of them, some part of them, is afraid that that's what they're going to be. At some point, we have it confirmed that the only jobs in this town are in the scrapyard. Like, I think someone actually talks about it. Uh, And then there's the secondary layer of this, which is that everybody works at the scrapyard sorting through trash. And America just loves to throw things away and to treat its poor kids like trash and to keep its, uh, to treat its black kids like trash. And there are a few moments of like true natural beauty in this movie, but in between them, we have the garbage heap. Very interesting.
0: It's pre Obama, and this you know twelve uh, year old black kid wants to be president, and. Yeah that's kind of a huge deal and in fact we were go <laughs> i don't think we had any idea at that point that we were going to go into like one of the worst presidencies of the the nation's existence you know because well, it was 2000 right so it was the beginning of the bush the w bush era we hadn't even hit 911 yet this was pre 911
1: yeah this film is coming off of like whatever perceived glory days we had with bill clinton and sliding right into george w bush and you know in a way does that moment even register to a community uh that is so reliant on its own internal mechanisms like they this movie feels very isolated from um the world at large
0: yes i think the movie goes out of its way to stay away from politics but there's, like a, there's a struggle that's not at the forefront of the film's narrative. Um, I found a quote from film and music critic Armand White, quote, While capturing the real contemporary issues of poverty, youth, alienation, and racial interaction, it touches on the noblest, most loving quests of its characters and solicits a personal response from anyone who views it, end quote. Oh, I um, like that. And those quests being like nausea, breaking up with Buddy to pursue George or like Vernon, who is like the rough but protective friend, you know, who wants to help, but he doesn't have the tools. Right. Yeah. Um, Or like George himself wants to be the good we see in the world. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, shall I go
1: into the uh, film part? Oh, no, I need to share an extremely weird fact I learned about George Washington, the president. Okay. um, While I was researching. Mm So at the beginning of this movie, there's a scene that was so absurdly arresting to me where someone is playing the piano, and as we pan across the piano, there's a goldfish in a bowl practically on the keyboard. And as a piano player, that alarmed me deeply, and I made a note of it, and I was like, I have to research this later on to see if it's significant or not. Well, listeners, it's not, um, but <laughs> the process... I did discover that uh, George Washington, the president, was one of the first Americans to own a goldfish. Really? Um, And I can't help but wonder if maybe that was like a weird, like it, it would just, it's gotta be a coincidence. But so the deal is that goldfish did not really come to America until after the Civil War. But before the Civil War, there were like one or two weird fish guys who gave them to people as extremely like lofty gifts and goldfish has a lofty gift yeah yeah they were (laughs) were rare they were extremely rare okay uh and he wrote about them in his journals because like he it was such a momentous thing that he was given one and that he and that he kept them so um he may have been one of the first people at least documented in the u.s to own a goldfish wow that's my weird george washington fact for this okay
0: all right, so let's talk about David Gordon Green. Let's just get this out of the way. All right. So yeah. I watched this movie, like I said, on a total lark. Okay. Uh, not knowing really what it was or anything about it. And I just completely fell in love with the film. It's so like it's beautiful. It's a beautiful film. And like, much to my surprise, after I finished watching it and the credits are rolling, I was like, David Gordon Green, I know that name. And then I look him up and it's like oh my god he did pineapple express and like your highness
1: and these stoner comedies that are just like he's he's like obsessed with uh danny mcbride
0: yeah yeah so i was confused i was very confused
1: i i confess i went through a similar um five stages of grief or shock around (laughs) learning much more recently like in the past week since we watched the movie Hey Lauren, guess where we're going? Um, where where are we going?
0: We're gonna go back <gasps> to the seventies. To the seventies. Oh. Oh. Right, that's almost as exciting. Yeah. So okay. once again, we're back in the seventies. We do end up here a lot. <laughs> we do. It is a very iconic time for film.
1: Okay. okay.
0: So or The cinematographer mentioned in the commentary that uh, they wanted to strike a balance between smooth, elegant, controlled style with the uh, cinematography and a loose, rambunctious documentary style interesting yeah and so they based those cinematic choices on films like medium cool which was 1969 but it's you know it's close enough to 1970 sorry when when did it come out 1969 nice (laughs) bless uh bush and sundance was another one um and walk about.
1: Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. So, uh
0: and also Terence Malik films, right?
1: No, is Terence Malik like a 70s? I don't consider him a 70s guy, but were his first two movies that everyone went nuts over in the 70s? I haven't seen. Yeah.
0: Those. His original like uh, swath of films was in the '70s. Okay. Okay. He was one of those guys, um, and then he made Thin Red Line, which was the movie we were going to do, and then decided to do something else instead. So it's George like, Washington. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Many critics have actually said that George Washington reminds them of Terrence Malick films. Okay. And they're not wrong. Green actually says himself that he takes a lot of inspiration from Malick and actually invites the comparison. So, Green talks about how George Washington is about tone and atmosphere, which is very Malikian. And A.A. Oh Dowd. Okay.
1: <laughs> it just sounds so mature.
0: Malikian.
1: Malikian.
0: So yeah, so his tone and atmosphere stuff is very Malikian, and A.A. Um, a. Dowd, my boy, says that Green seems, quote, content, simply luxuriating in the company of his characters, eavesdropping on their precocious conversations and soaking up their nascent wisdom rather than focusing on plot structure.
1: Okay, okay.
0: So uh, I like Dowd a lot and uh, I especially like his thoughts on this film, so I might bring him up again later, we'll see. That's allowed, he can can be your boy. So even in all this, uh, all its Malickian vibe, um, to me, uh, I still see Green's style in it, which I was talking about earlier. So most notably the moments of comedy he can okay. put into it. Definitely. Oh, right? Yeah. yeah okay. But like he's a great comedic director, right? So even in this drama that he created, like you see his hand in there holding those shots where he makes an awkward moment funny by holding it just long enough mm. or the dialogue between like the women doing their thing in the, in the living room and they're all talking about men and like so confident and they try to chase Vernon away. And that whole scene was just so funny.
1: Yeah, I definitely, um, I, I get what you're saying in terms of pacing, but also even moments like when they're moving Buddy's body and they put the horse mask on him. And it's like, you know, I was reading a lot of like critique around like, oh, well, it doesn't matter to them because they're kids. And in their minds, it's just the empty shell of a body. And I'm like, okay, yes, but also it's funny. It is funny. It's a little inappropriate. <laughs> and that's, yeah, I mean, that's not an unintentional thing. So
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm going to go ahead and and
0: uh, move into the next segment, which is the visual aspects of the film. There's a lot of visual going on here. There is, there is. So Mm -hmm. the iconography of George Washington for me is America the Beautiful and America the Broken. I love that. So we have, you know, the obvious stuff is red, white, and blue color schemes. There's George as the archetype of superhero. He's wearing his helmet and Buddy's wrestling uniform. And it just, there's nothing more American than a superhero, you know?
1: That's very true. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Did we invent superheroes? Can we say, I feel like we can say think, we invented superheroes. I think we did. Yeah, okay, yeah. All those delightful, young, hopeful Jewish men and stuffy artist lofts in, in New York. Thank you for giving us superheroes. Yeah,
0: um, so there's stars, which there's the sparklers that the kids wave around, you know, and cool. the and Rico Rice waves around and such. Um, and then there are stripes, such as the railroad ties. And like, there are stripes everywhere. Like in the the bathroom, when Buddy meets his demise, the, the bathroom stalls are fit into the frame in such a way that there's stripes.
1: You know? Totally, I did not register that at the time.
0: And people wear stripes, and it's just there's a lot of that, you know. And then the most the most obvious stars and stripes are uh, the big Fourth of July parade. I,
1: I was gonna say, I feel like it's all crescendoing towards that. Yeah. Alley of the of the literal Fourth of July parade. I have to say, now that you've mentioned the bathroom scene, I feel like the director's ability to create a realistic. Setting was really interesting to me because that bathroom was like, I could smell the wet concrete. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was such a an evocative setting even before any tension was introduced. Like when they were just sort of fucking around in there and like blowing time. I was like, we've all been in the weird public park bathroom. <laughs> and the urine. I could totally smell the urine. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was not, not a, pre- a pleasant place. Not a right. pleasant place to die either. <sighs> yeah, yeah so oh yeah so um so i was doing a little research on george's skull condition which is mentioned frequently throughout the film um they say that he has a soft fontanelle um and i think it's an interesting thing because um so uh, you know just as a reminder they talk about how he has to wear a helmet because the soft parts of his skull never hardened up from when he was an infant Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fun fact, this softness and lack of fusion between your skull plates is what lets vaginal delivery be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's no inherent condition that indicates that if your skull doesn't fuse, then you must have some specific thing going on. Because I thought it might be indicating some signal of, about his family or his history or, you know, the place where he lives. Um, it's very, very rare. But in my mind, that means... That because there's no specific thing going on, that what we're supposed to draw from this is, is um, a set of circumstances that's entirely symbolic. Uh, the act of your skull fusing is supposed to happen in the period of infancy until about the age of two, on average. So we have George saddled with this like inherently infantile problem. Um, and you know, he wants to compare himself to these legendary adult heroes of our country. So we have him sort of symbolically stuck between childhood and adulthood in this very physical, almost fantastical way. Um, and you know, maybe the secondary element of this is that the adult skull doesn't fully fuse and stop doing its stuff until the age of 20. So mm. like, obviously George has a problem separate from that, but it's also kind of a reminder of like, hey dude, chill out. You, you're not done growing up yet. Like not even your peers' skulls are fully fused. Uh, so, so what does that mean with, you know, you, for your, you and your relationship with your peers?
0: Yeah. And that also has a lot to do with the coming of age aspect of the genre.
1: Yeah. You know, how everyone's still growing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They found a literal physical way to like cr- embody that and then also create some danger around it. Yeah. And I was reading somewhere that basically uh,
0: George as superhero with mm-hmm. his Achilles heel or like his kryptonite being the softness of his skull. Yes. But in a way, I kind of also think
1: that like, you know, that I like your idea better. Like, but that's fascinating. to me. Like when, when you mentioned that, I was like, whoa, like that had not even occurred to me because it makes yeah. total sense that if you're going to have a hero, even in your own mind, our rules because of the aforementioned delightful Jewish men who invented superheroes, there's always got to be a kryptonite. Totally. It makes total sense that almost as if George was writing himself, he would give himself an Achilles heel. So true. I love that. Oh my
0: gosh. Okay. The last thing that I really connected with was um, the town is broken down and it's struggling and it's, it's rusted and it's rustic. And there are cracks in the, you know, the concrete and the the lots, and, you know, there's just nothing going on. It feels very lonely. It, there yeah. aren't people or opportunities in that town. Absolutely. Um, it makes me think of wabi-sabi. You want to explain that in case anyone's listening who doesn't know what that means? So in traditional Japanese aesthetics, wabi-sabi is like a worldview centered on the acceptance of transience and imperfection. It's uh, something Lauren and I both know pretty intimately from uh, ceramics.
1: Yeah, this idea that you may not be fully in control of the artwork that is coming out of the kiln and you have to accept the imperfections that you're given as a form of art. And you might have to accept that it might not come out of the kiln at all. Yes, that's true. Stuff yeah. explodes at very high temperatures. Yeah. But I think that's really true. I mean, if you look at the at the film, and, and this was the thing that was Malikian for me, was these very beautiful sort of lingering shots of, you know, the breeze blowing through the grasses and the leaves or whatever, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, a rusted out car that these kids are playing on. Yeah. and they're And they're treated with sort of the same reverence, which is interesting, because we have growth and decay happening simultaneously. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. That's so great. It's so
0: (laughs) wabi-sabi.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. It's really interesting. Is it question time? Oh my gosh, I think it is question time. Question time! Question time is when we ask each other questions that the other person has not been prepared for, which is kind of funny because this entire podcast has sort of turned into that now. (laughs) But I do still like the idea of having off the wall questions. So, yeah,
0: totally, totally. Okay, um, so
1: start it off. What do you think about the fact that George isn't on the cover, it's Buddy?
0: Hmm. The reason they put Buddy on the cover is because Buddy is the catalyst okay. from childhood to adulthood. And I also noticed that like in the background is like the train tracks, so in a way like to me that says buddy's never gonna get to go anywhere and Mm -hmm. get out of that town okay okay i gotcha so my first question is what
1: is up with the animals i mean i think part of it for me is that like i think we like societally group children with animals like as feral creatures that we don't have control over and that have minds of their own i also think that some of it, you know, is showing us specifically in the setting, how close or maybe how thin the barrier is between the natural world and this community. Mm. Um, there, it, there's very, very little boundaries between the way that these people live with like their surroundings. Mm. It's the kind of town where like you might not shut your door at night yeah totally i think part of the reason i didn't notice it is because it just felt so natural like yeah these people are like symbiotically intertwined with the the animals persistently throughout the film okay all right fair enough um my question is way less serious than that one (laughs) if you were going to give this movie a hyper specific netflix category name what would it be oh god fuck (laughs) (sighs) i mean you know what i'm talking about no i I know just that like goes off the wall
0: coming of age in a rural town okay or surreal coming of age drama okay okay (laughs) that's good (laughs) yeah good stuff good stuff okay so my last question is why do you think it's named george
1: washington Cause his last name is not Washington, right? Right. I've been thinking about this. So I I think that for me, it's a frame for Nazia's narration of she wants George to be president or he wants himself to be president. I can't remember which is the truth there, but just the idea of like, who is our first president? Who is our true heroic president? Like the unsullied president. Pretty much all of the presidents have been sullied except for George Washington. I mean, you can argue your way on this one way or the other, but like the pinnacle, the the captain, the prince of presidents is still George Washington. George washington so if he's gonna have somebody that he's aiming towards especially especially at the middle school or high school level like you don't know yet all the like weird shit about george washington that you learn later on uh at that point he's still like the gleaming ideal mm-hmm. so in my mind it made sense that it's like if he wants to be a hero if he wants to be a president if he has all this like patriotism and heroism wrapped up together that's what he's aiming for he wants to be gw 2.0 Okay. Okay. That's, uh, that's my thought. I love it. So what are your takeaways? Um, people are better and worse than you think that they'll be. And people are better and worse than you give them credit for. There's a lot, there's a lot of disappointment and proving yourself simultaneously mm-hmm. happening in this movie. So I guess my big
0: takeaway is that this movie feels like a cousin to Beasts of the
1: Southern Wild
0: to me. Oh, man. Right.
1: Wanna watch that again now and think about this. Yeah. Okay. So everybody's homework and our homework is that we have to go watch Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yes. I love that. Okay, so next episode
0: for our July American-themed podcasts, we will be doing The Purge. Oh, America
1: is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> That's... I can't wait. I can't wait. Good, good. Yeah. good. I'm, yeah. I'm glad
0: you're excited like I am. So I'm Very excited. Okay, so I'm going to... Before we reluctantly leave our listeners for another two weeks, I'm going to give you all a new podcast recommendation. All right. So a few colleagues of mine, wonderful colleagues, have created a great show. It's called the Name Pending Podcast, Parentheticals Name Pending, and it's just a delight to listen
1: to. Is that really what it's called? Yes. <laughs> of course um, it is. Yeah okay
0: so they describe it as a train wreck discussion about movies and other useless trash so please subscribe on youtube at over the top media and follow their instagram twitter and reddit at alien art school all right
1: outro us lauren well thank you for listening thank you don't forget to hit that subscribe button to auto download our new episodes and follow us on Instagram at CheckYourThreading and on Twitter at CheckThreading. You can also find all our contact information and an episode archive on checkyourthreading.com. Dot com. <laughs> Is that an old Yahoo ad? <laughs> <laughs>